If you get angry at what it says, don't shoot the messengers. We didn't make it up. We're not narrow-minded bigots. We just believe that the word of God is true and that it was inspired by the Lord. So I hope that you'll be blessed if you're visiting. And those of us who have been here for a while and are part of the fellowship, we just want to grow and serve the Lord. If you're just kind of getting plugged in, make yourself at home around here. We'll do what we can to reach out and try to connect with you. But we also invite you to connect with us. You can go online to riverstone.church and find out how to get involved in a small group, how to be involved in some manner of service. We have all kinds of resources. So however we can help you, that's what we're here to do, to serve and build up the body of Christ. Right now we're in John chapter 17, and we've been looking at this very important prayer of Jesus for believers. The night before he died, he spent this sleepless night anticipating that he was going to die on the cross the next morning. But one of the last things he did before praying in the garden is pray for us. And we learned from John 17 that this is a prayer for all of us. So he started out by praying, Father, glorify me as I glorify you. And we learned that the cross is the place where Christ is greatly glorified as he laid down his life for our sins and was resurrected to sit at the right hand of God. But then he began to pray for us. And we saw, first of all, Last week that he prayed for our protection. Father, keep them from the evil one. And, and I hope and pray that you, you and I are taking that to heart, that you are regularly praying that God will protect you from Satan and protect us from evil. This morning we're going to see the next thing Jesus prayed for, and that is he prayed for our sanctification. Now that might be a new word for some of you, but it's one that's really important in the Bible. So I want you to start with me. We're going to read verses 16 through 19 of John chapter 17. So, Jesus says in verse 15, keep them from the evil one, that's where he left off. Verse 16, they are not of the world. Talking about believers, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So here's this word, he says, sanctify them. Now this is what he prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. So we want to talk about what does that mean to be sanctified? Because he prayed that for us. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 or verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And then Jesus comes back to this sanctify again. Look at verse 19. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. This morning we want to talk about what does it mean to be sanctified by Jesus. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit will take your word, not by cleverness or human wisdom, but by power and by the presence of the risen Christ. May your word change our lives. May your word save lost people. May your word bring us to a place of surrender and worship. And may you be greatly glorified as you grow your church through prayer, the spirit, worship, and the word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. This morning, I want to encourage you, if, you're, if you have a pen, I'd really encourage you to take notes. We do, as I said, we don't have the bulletins anymore, but if you want to take notes, several people actually ask me, hey, where are those papers to take notes? We have them both at the Welcome Center and at the table back there. So, Remember, the dullest pencil is better than the sharpest memory, and I'm going to give a lot of verses, and I would really encourage you, there's a lot to think about this morning 
And so if you write them down, you can go home. One of the things I would encourage you to do is just buy a little journal notebook. You know, bring it weekly and just saw somebody in the back. I said, just like class notes taken. Today's the 26, you know, 26. You can go back and look over these things. Teach them to your children. Have Bible studies with other people. So we're going to start with this very important word, sanctification. Now, here's something that's really interesting. The New Testament has this one root word, hagios, that means holy, that has three or four other words that are all coming from that same root. One single word, holy, right? But the word sanctification comes from the same root. The word saint in the New Testament comes from the same word. The word translated holiness in the New Testament, they all come from this same root word, Hagias. So I want to start, before we talk about what it means for a Christian to be sanctified, let's start with the very basic meaning of this word holy. This word hagios is used primarily to describe God. It's like an adjective. God is holy. Now, generally, most people, when they think of holy, they, they picture my granddad's a holy man. He sits and reads the Bible in his rocker for 12 hours. Now, he don't have no fun, but he's a holy man. That is far from what the word holy means. First and foremost, at its most basic level, it means separate or distinct. It doesn't even have moral overtones at all. It's not about being good or bad. It's being set apart, different, unique. So when the Bible refers to God as holy, it's the only attribute of God that is continually brought up in heaven. We read twice in the Bible, in Isaiah 6, and Revelation chapter 4, that day and night, angels do not cease to cry out, holy, 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 unique, set apart, distinct from creation. Now, the reason I believe God uses that term to describe himself is because of his incredible greatness. There's nothing with which we can liken God or compare him or even begin to Think about the great gulf that exists between Almighty God, the Holy Creator, and us, His little frail creation. So angels are constantly going, holy, set apart are you, O God. And as you think about it, His great being so exceedingly surpasses us and stuff that it makes sense that all of creation would be praising Him constantly. We owe ourselves to Him. Holy, holy, O God, you are our Creator. Holy, holy, holy God. You are our sustainer. You keep us alive. Holy, holy, holy God, you're our designer and you're sovereignly holding everything together. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is sort of trying to figure out why are people worshiping creation? That's dumb. Carving out a statue and worshiping it doesn't make sense. He goes, with half of it, you bow down to worship. With the other half, you cook your dinner. It doesn't make sense. So God asks in Isaiah 40, do you not know? Haven't you heard? This is Isaiah 40, verse 21. Hasn't anyone told you from the foundations of the earth that God sits above the vault of the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers? God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent. He can reduce rulers to nothing. Obama or whoever, he can reduce anybody to nothing. He makes the, the, the earthly judges meaningless. People are like scarcely planted, he says. But he blows on them, and they wither away. And then God asks this question. So, now listen to this. 
To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. This is why God says, don't even think about drawing a picture of me or trying to come up with an image of me. You can't. His greatness is so unsearchable. He's so set apart from us. He goes, don't you know this? So as I think about God and who he is, holy, set apart, awesome God who created us little grasshoppers, it makes sense then that this holy God who is set apart from his creation has every right then to set apart certain parts of creation for himself. And so when we're reading the Bible, God begins to set things apart and say, this is mine set apart for me. So he calls the altar of sacrifice, the holy altar. If there's an instrument that they use to, to, to trim the candlesticks, that's a holy object. That's set apart for God. All right, let me break it down so you get it. Remember mom's sewing scissors? And if you have a mom that sews, we have scissors everywhere in the house, but sewing scissors, oh no, you do not ever. If mom catches you cutting out your cardboard project for science, you will be under the curse because those are special set-apart scissors. God sets apart things in the Old Testament, but he also, now listen, he sets apart people. For example, prophets or priests. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I consecrated you. In other words, I set you apart. God said of Aaron and the priests, he said, ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve as priests. So this idea of set-apartness, okay, God is set-apart. He's unique. He's awesome. He's God and creator. We owe him everything. And then he says, parts of my creation are set apart for me. Now, once we understand that, you can then see if something's set apart for God, why it has moral overtones. So holy, when it's talking about God setting apart for something, he's going, that's mine, and so it better not get dirty. So the moral overtones begin to come out. Uh, Donald Carson says this, ideally, if someone is set apart for God, right, if you and I are set apart for God and God's purposes, then a person who's holy will do only what God wants, and they will hate everything God hates, and ideal holiness then would be a believer to be totally set apart for God and totally set apart from sin. So interestingly, in Leviticus 11, God said of his people, I am the Lord who brought you up from Egypt. Be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 1.16. He says, it is written, you shall be holy, God says, because I am holy. So since God is set apart from his creation, even when he first created and there was no sin, he was already set apart from it. But then when sin entered into it, when, when Satan sinned and then Adam and Eve joined the fray, right, God began to demonstrate this tremendous hatred that he has for sin. He cannot sin. He hates sin. He will not tolerate sin. Sin is not in him. It's never welcome in his presence, and he must punish it with all of his fury. And then all of a sudden, we read about how God wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to have fellowship with him. He's like, but there's a problem. We got to deal with this sin or you'll never be in a relationship with God. So the apostle John, when he later wrote 1 John, listen to these words. 
He taught us that if we want to have a relationship with God, we must first be cleansed from our sins. We must first be set apart from sin. We must seek to turn away from sin, to confess and repent of our sins, or otherwise, how am I going to enjoy a fellowship with God? And yet, every Sunday, people will prance around in churches, hey, praise the Lord, I love Jesus, I have fellowship with him, and then all week long, they live in gross and open sin without a repentant and contrite heart. And so John throws the penalty flag right at the beginning of the book. He says, this is the message that we heard from God, that God is light. This is 1 John 1, 5. God is light, which is an image of his holiness. In God, there is no darkness at all. And John says, if we say that we have fellowship with God, this holy God, and we walk in the darkness, and we're just running around in our sins, he says, we are lying. But if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we can have fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sin, right? Because none of us doesn't sin, but, but we should be, when we sin, quick to confess it, quick to repent, quick to turn to Jesus and be cleansed. So, so this is what John says. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. So we continue to have fellowship with this holy God because the blood of Jesus cleanses us. So you continue reading through the New Testament because Jesus, you know, brings it down. He goes, now I'm praying, Father, for their set apartness. Sanctify them. Sanctify them in holiness. Set them apart, O oh God. And as I read, I go, okay, what does that mean? Because Jesus talked about his own set apartness and of his followers. So what we're going to find, first of all, is that when we talk about sanctification for a Christian, there are two parts to it. There's what's called positional sanctification. That's what we're going to call it, positional. That's where God takes you like a pair of scissors and saves you and says, now you're mine. The second one is called progressive, and that's where our lives begin to live like those who have been set apart. So I think Jesus introduces this as he says in verse 16. So we'll start there. He says, Father, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So, so the first main point I want to make from this passage is this. Christ is telling us that his followers are set apart from the world. Okay? That's positional sanctification. If you are a born-again Christian, you are set apart from the world. You're not going to be. You already have been. Okay? Now, what does that mean when Jesus says, Father, they are not from the world as I am not from the world? Well, what happens is at your conversion, when you become saved, bam, God does a bunch of stuff. He justifies you. He washes you from your sins. And then he sets you apart. I want you to write down this very important verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul said this, do you not know that unrighteous and sinful people who continue in their sins, they're not going to heaven. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone tell you, oh yeah, yeah, God loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven. He goes, fornicators, people who are having sex before they're married, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, covetous people, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to the Corinthians, and by the way, 
Such were some of you before you were saved. But then he says this, when you became saved, now listen, he says, first of all, you were washed. You were washed. And then he says, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of God. So the moment you became a Christian, you were washed and God set you apart. You were sanctified. You're like, I didn't feel it. Well, of course you didn't feel it. This is divine revelation. He tells us, I learned what he has done for me. Another passage that maybe you never made the connection, but this is an interesting passage. In a passage about marriage, it says, husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5. Just like Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. Why did Jesus die for the church? Listen to what it says in verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. Why? He, he died for the church so that he might sanctify her. But then again, he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the moment you repented and you believed in Christ, even if you don't remember exactly when it was, God washed away my sin and your sin, completely washed. He justified you, which means he declared you righteous. And then he sanctified you. He set you apart. You are still in this world, but you are no longer of this world. You belong to Jesus now. And that's really exciting. And that's why the Bible calls Christians saints. The word saints literally just means set apart ones, holy ones, okay? Now, this is very different because some of you have grown up in the Roman Catholic tradition where only a few select miracle-working people ever would achieve to the holy status of being called saints, that's not what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1, write this down. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I'm writing to the church of God at Corinth. Listen, to those who have been sanctified, set apart. And then he says this, they are saints by calling. All in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. If you are a believer, if you've called on the Lord Jesus to save you, you have been sanctified. You're set apart. You've been washed from your sins. You don't have to earn God's favor. You're already his. Pardon me, you're God's tool. We don't like to be called a tool, so I'll call you an instrument. I'm his tool. I'm his vessel. I'm set apart. I'm not the same in this world. Might not always act like it, but God's telling you, you're not of this world. So that's the first part of sanctification. Now, that's positional. Once I learn that, I land on the ground and I realize, wow, I'm forgiven. I belong to God now. I'm washed in the blood of Christ. I've been given the Holy Spirit. I, I, I step out and I get baptized to show my faith, which if you haven't been baptized, don't wait. If you're saved, you're supposed to do that as an act of public identification with Christ. You're not flying under the radar. So if you're not baptized and you want to get baptized, let us know. It doesn't get you to heaven. You don't get in the water so you can get sanctified. You get in the water to tell everybody, this water symbolizes that I'm already washed and I belong to Jesus. But the other aspect of sanctification is what we call progressive. It's ongoing. So notice, even though in position we've been set apart, verse 16, verse 17 then teaches us that there's an ongoing aspect. So verse 16 teaches us Christ's followers have been set apart. 
positional. Verse 17 tells us Christ's followers are being set apart, progressive. So when Jesus prays for me, he goes, God, sanctify Tom. Sanctify Bob, especially Bob. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. All of us, right? Sorry, Bob. <laughs> you should never mess with the guy who writes your paycheck and is your boss, you know. He's my boss. I love you, man. No, just kidding. So sanctify them in the truth. Now, Jesus is praying that for you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I like how Wayne Grudem defines progressive sanctification. He says, it's an ongoing process whereby believers are becoming more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. So the moment I'm saved, he's like, you are washed, you're forgiven, you're over here, you're mine. But then I go, yeah, but I'm still pretty messy. And he goes, yeah, that's why I'm praying for you to be sanctified, to become more and more free from your sin, more and more like Christ. It's not enough to just say, hey, man, we're not sinless. I got my hell insurance. I'm not sinless. Yeah, but he saved us, so we sin less. If there's no change in your heart and in your life, something is desperately wrong. In fact, there are some people who go, sanctification's optional. Not all Christians are in on that. You know, I want Jesus as my savior, but this lordship and sanctification, nah, that's not for me. You know what the author of Hebrews said? This one will kind of rock our boat a little bit. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, pursue sanctification without which you will not see God. You're like, wait, so you're telling me I have to, I have to, I have to really be good to get to heaven? No. The New Testament clearly teaches this. If you're a Christian... You're going to pursue sanctification. It's not optional. In fact, ready? The word is translated holiness in some Bibles. Pursue holiness. Oh, wait. Jerry Bridges wrote a whole book on that. The pursuit of holiness. It really could be called the pursuit of sanctification. In other words, as I become a Christian, I realize that Jesus isn't going, I just want you to be happy, Tom. I just want you to do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. He's going, Tom, I love you just as you are, and I saved you, and I washed you, but I love you too much to leave you this way, so you and I need to work together and surrender to me so that you can progressively become more and more like my son. So this, I've had people say this, Pastor, I know God doesn't want me to be in this marriage. He wants me to be happy. And I go, remind me which verse says that. You got the first letter right. He wants you to be holy. <laughs> and he could possibly even use a difficult marriage to spur you on to holiness. <laughs> I don't even want to look over there. <laughs> Somebody's going to get a beating today. <laughs> I'm sure that was a single brother just affirming... Affirming the ladies to hang in there with your difficult husband. Wow. I've lost control. <laughs> so, so, what's my part if Jesus is praying, Father, sanctify them? Well, first of all, this needs to be ramped up and important in my life. Philippians 2 says it this way. As you have always obeyed God in my, my presence, now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, 
really devote yourself that becoming like Christ is God's most important goal for you. Even more important than what you do. It's who you are and your inner person as you interact with the gospel. When was the last time you prayed for your sanctification? 1 Thessalonians 5. Write this one down. Here's, if you go, well, what should I pray? How about this? In 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Pray that. God, sanctify me entirely. I know you've set me apart in my position, but man, I got a long way to go in my practice. I know you call me a saint, but I sure haven't been living like one. Sanctify me. And then he says this. May God sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that. God. See, here's the thing. Christianity can, can easily go toward legalism and externals alone. I don't cuss no more, and I don't get drunk. And then we become these self-righteous, critical people, never thinking about that. Our sanctification involves our spirit and our soul, that God hates pride. He hates laziness. He, la he hates judgmental spirits. He hates criticalness. He hates envy and covetousness and greed and jealousy. He doesn't just hate external sins. Well, I don't have sex except with my... God wants to cause us to become holy on the inside. Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He urged the Corinthians. He said, cleanse yourself from anything that defiles your body or your spirit and perfect your sanctification in the fear of God. Now, God has given us various means for our sanctification. He has given us various habits and blessings to help us to become more and more free from sin. For example, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, now go be holy and figure out how to do that. He says, if you learn to walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. But you know one of the other big things that he gives us to help us become like Christ? The body of Christ. He gives us other Christians. You will never become a sanctified Christian without relationships with other Christians. Sanctification is not a solo sport. You can't just go, it's me, Jesus, and the Bible. Because we need other believers to speak into our lives, point out sin, correct us, comfort us, bear our burdens, admonish us. And this is why I, I strongly encourage you, we all as leadership want you to be involved in some sort of a small group. We have men's studies, women's studies, all kinds of growth groups, but you have to be engaged with other Christians, studying the Bible and talk about how it's changing your life, praying for each other. You will never become a sanctified, mature Christian as if the church doesn't matter. It matters, and we need people. And of course, we want to hide from that. If you don't want to deal with sin, of course I don't want to be having somebody ask me, how is your relationship with God doing? How's your prayer life? Are you hiding any secret sins? Could you pray for me as, as we share our struggles with one another? But this is New Testament Christianity. As a husband and wife, don't be beating up your spouse. You better work on your sanctification. Ask them to pray for you. How can I pray for you to become more like Jesus? So Jesus doesn't point out all the means of our sanctification, just one of them in this passage. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. And while God has given us various means of sanctification, Jesus prays for the word of God. 
to be the instrument of setting me apart and changing me. And it makes sense when you think about it. If God's going to change my behavior that I'm more and more like Christ and my heart and my beliefs, then he's got to start my mind. It's got to start on the inside. And the way he does that is as I'm listening to the Bible, I realize my need to be changed. And I realize that what I think and what I believe affects how I live. And so God begins to change my belief system through his powerful word. And then that changes my behavior. So Romans 12 says, if you're a Christian, present your body as a living sacrifice to God. And don't be conformed to this world because you're set apart. You're not part of it. But then he says, be transformed. Become like Christ. How? By the renewing of your mind. It's the word of God. As I'm open to receiving scripture into my life and believing it and surrendering to God, it's the Bible that begins to transform me. So God changes my values as I'm studying and reading and learning about Jesus. The things that used to be important may change. My worldview, why am I here? What's life about? My, my beliefs about the meaning of life. I begin to have different views about what's going to make me happy, about what's important as I choose my occupation, as I choose my lifestyle, my recreation, the things I watch on television, my vacations, my discretionary spending, my parenting, what I do with my idle time, all of that shaped by the word of God, the gospel. Everything becomes radically different as we're immersed in the gospel. And so this will not make you more restrained and like, gee, I just have to get more rules from God. This is the greatest liberty that we can experience. Jesus said earlier in this book, if you continue in my words, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I don't know anybody who's deeply, consistently seeking to develop themselves for the glory of God and their sanctification that isn't a pretty happy dude or, or girl, right? Doesn't mean they don't have problems, but at its root, the very essence of, of, of making my relationship with Christ the most important thing is going to bring you the joy and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Bob and I sometimes talk, even as pastors, it's easy to get caught up in just doing your job instead of saying, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is my relationship with Christ and becoming more and more like him. Now, real quick, we've got two more things to note in this passage. One, we're already set apart positionally. We're being set apart, and that's progressively. But the third thing we're going to learn is that Christians are set apart so that they might be sent back into the world. See, God didn't just say, you know, move them out into monasteries so they don't get dirty from them wicked people. Jesus, after praying for our sanctification, he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So notice the direct link between sanctification and mission. We're set apart so that we can be sent. But if you're not set apart first, your sentness isn't going to be effective. Because you're going to be just like the world. And I'm going to be just like the world. If I'm not clean, the Bible says when we cleanse ourselves, 2 Timothy 2, we become useful to the master. So what does this look like? Now, Jesus, first of all, says, hey, I was set apart and sent. Now, there's some similarities and some differences. This is interesting. I, I learned this this week. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, 
Do you say of me, whom my father sanctified and sent unto the world, that, that, that I'm blaspheming because I call myself the son of God? Think about what he said. My father sanctified me and sent me into the world. What? Jesus, you're not a sinner. Doesn't always mean sinner. It just means set apart. So Christ was set apart, but when he was set apart and sent into the world, it's a little bit different from us. So he goes, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them. Not exactly for the same reasons, okay? God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins. He sends us into the world to point others to Jesus to save them from their sins. So there's a little difference. Hebrews 13, verse 12 says this, Jesus, that he might sanctify his people through his blood, suffered. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by the one offering of Jesus, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So when Jesus says he was sent into the world, think about the, the difference. He was sent into the world to seek and save the lost. But then he sends us apart to go and, 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 and point them back to him as Savior. In fact, this really is just setting us up for chapter 20. When we come to John chapter 20 on Easter, listen to what he said. He said, peace I leave with you as the Father sent me, I also send you. And isn't that interesting? What's our mission? What, what do advance? I hope I asked our small group the other night, what's our mission? And most of them did pretty good. If you know it, say it with me. Advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples, okay? That's what we're talking about, being sent into the world to advance the gospel. Helping people to become Christ followers, disciples, who will then help others become Christ followers. So, how do I get involved in that? Get plugged in. Don't just attend Sunday morning. Now, the last thing I want you to see is verse 19, and then we'll draw some application. After Jesus says, I'm sending them into the world, you're like, you're going home after this service, back to your family, back to your business, back to your neighbors, back to your relatives. But then he says, Father, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so the final thing we learn is that Christ's followers, we're set apart because Christ first set himself apart. Jesus set himself apart. What did that mean? Because he didn't need to be set apart from sin. He already was. But he devoted himself to be set apart to do what God wants. So, so in John 10, Jesus says, my father set me apart. In John 17, Jesus says, I set myself apart. What did that look like? Well, when you read about the life of Jesus, he never got distracted from his mission. His mission was to obey God and to do his will by going up to the cross and dying. So when Jesus talks about sanctifying himself, he's not primarily talking here, that's why I didn't curse, because I was trying to sanctify myself. He was talking about the cross. He consecrated himself to go to the cross. He lived his life to lay down his life. He spent his last night without sleep so that he could lay down his life for his sheep. He became obedient unto death on the cross. He said, Father, I set myself apart to you. So, so the reason that we could be set apart is because he already set himself apart, and we owe it all to him. 
And it would be safe to say here that he died for us then so that we could go live for him and become like him and then go back to the mess of daily life and try to reach people and love our brothers and sisters and forgive one another and grow like Christ and deal with sin in our own lives and help one another and our children to become more like Christ. So we're really set apart to be sent. Jesus' set-apartness is the grounds of our sentness. And the purpose of God saving us isn't just to give us hell insurance. So Jesus is praying for me. Now let's talk very practically about how to apply this. I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There, this is a, a great study, and I don't want you to walk away and go, oh, well, I learned everything I can about sanctification. There's so much more. You could read Romans 6 where Paul goes, what prophet was to do those things of which you're now ashamed? He says, but now as you present yourself to God, it results in sanctification and ultimately eternal life. But here's a very practical way to think about our sanctification. As sinners, we all struggle to bring our sexual desires under the, the influence of the gospel. If we were all sinless, we wouldn't be tempted to participate in any sexual sin because we would just be with our spouse, right? And before we're married, we wouldn't... We, but because we're sinners and because we live in a world that's broken and fallen, there are all kinds of ways that our sexuality is distorted because of the fall, and so we have desires that are not scriptural. So young people aren't married and they're like, I don't want to wait till I'm married to have sex. People who are married are going, I'm not happy or satisfied to just have my spouse. I want an extra person. Some people have this painful aversion to the same sex. But it's all under the same category of sexual sin. And some people are using porn and all kinds of masturbation, things that are just not honoring and holy. So Paul's actually going to address sexual sin in the context of sanctification. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is just an example. I want to give you an example of how sanctification and our ongoing walk with Christ, all of it is under the, the, the gospel and, and our, our personal becoming more like him and progressive sanctification. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction how to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Some of you are like, I'm trying to figure out what God's will. Does he want me to work at Mo and Larry's Pizza? Does he want me to go on the next missions trip? I don't know about this, but I know this. The Bible says, Tom, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You say, what's your pastor? He taught me what God's will is today, that it's to become more free from sin and more and more like Christ. And then Paul gives an application of it. Here's an area where your sanctification comes into play. That is, that you abstain from any sexual immorality. Fornicating, if you're sleeping with someone, you're not married, that's sin. If you're a Christian, you're sinning. 
you're having an affair or an emotional affair, you're, you're, you're already ready to leave your spouse, don't, don't go to adultery. If you're already doing that, repent of that. If you're drawn towards the same-sex attraction, that doesn't make you an unredeemable person. Don't practice that. So Paul says, God wants us to know how to possess our bodies in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like Gentiles who don't know God. So yeah, the people all around us are just doing whatever they want. We're bombarded with television and garbage, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it normal, and it certainly doesn't make it Christ-like or biblical. And so God says, listen, you and I can learn progressively to possess our bodies in holiness. No one should transgress and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. You see that? That's important to God. How I talk, and not just what I do, but even what I think about, what I say. I'm growing but, but I would expect Paul to close here, and if you don't obey this, God's going to get you. If someone says, I don't have to listen to Paul, who does he think he is? So little times, so many women, I'm doing what I want. Paul says, if you reject that, you have not rejected man, but you have rejected God. But notice how he closes this. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see the connection? God is asking me to become like Jesus, to turn away from sin, but he's not going, now you go figure out how to do that and stop sinning. He's going, I have given you my Holy Spirit so that my Holy Spirit can give you power to become holy. And so we desperately need to surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, God, I can't do this. I need prayer. I need prayer power. I need scripture. I need the body of Christ. We're all in process here. The church is a hospital. But we don't want to condone sin. We don't want to just say, ah, well, we're all sinners. We want to pursue holiness with mercy and grace and truth and the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we close this morning, if you're not a Christian, your sanctification is not even, shouldn't be on the radar. You need to be saved from your sin. The sanctification is for saved people. If you're not saved yet, if you're not forgiven, if you haven't repented and come to Christ and say, Lord, I want to be saved from my sin, that's the most important thing. If you're not a Christian, you can't work on your sanctification. You're not set apart for God. So this morning, some of you just say, God, set me apart, forgive me. I get it. I believe that Jesus shed his blood. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Here I am, Lord. I'm checking in to the rehab. Save my soul and forgive me. If you are a Christian, you're already a saint. But maybe you're like, yikes. He might say that, but that's not how I'm living. And God's going, that's why I'm praying for you. And the Holy Spirit deals with us, and, and God may be convicting you as a Christian. Don't hide from your sin. Confess it. Turn from it. Ask God this morning to cleanse you. He's not up there to beat you up. He's there to build you up and comfort you. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray that as a church, we will become more and more like Christ, that we will not just be people who the Bible says in the last days, hold to a profession of godliness, but deny its power. The power of Jesus is to change us. 
And there's nothing that Christ can't change us when it comes to sin. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? We have the Spirit of God. Be praying for me, my family, our leaders. I'm not up here going, you sinners, you better. We're all in this together. But holiness matters to Christ. And it matters to a church. And when a church is committed to the holiness of the gospel, powerful things happen because we become useful and used by God to say, look, if Jesus can change me, he can change you. And be praying that God will send us back into the world, set apart to reach people for Christ. Father, thank you for your word. May it bear rich fruit in our lives. May we take seriously our call to holiness. Protect us from Satan. Let us not hide in secret shame, but let us confess, repent, be cleansed, and strengthened. Bless my brothers and sisters and my own family, my own soul, Lord. May we become more and more like you. Thank you for the cross where you set yourself apart, that we might be set apart. I now send your people, Lord, in the name of Jesus. We go back to our homes and family that we might reach our family and friends and especially our children and our grandchildren and help them to know Jesus and love and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Be in prayer for the church. Go get your kids, please, first and foremost. <laughs>